welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we are going to be talking about autism. So this is something that we talked about briefly in the vaccines episode that was pretty recent uh, because there is this mild yet persistent controversy uh, surrounding a link between vaccines and autism. So we talked about vaccines a lot in that episode. Today we're going to be talking exclusively about autism because we want to understand what it is and what the cause is and what treatment looks like and what research surrounding autism looks like. So today, to help us talk about this, is Aaron Nosco. Aaron is a research coordinator for the Baby Brain Imaging and Behavior Study at UCLA. This is a longitudinal study examining brain function and behavior in early infancy in order to identify the earliest predictors of autism spectrum disorder. So she's really in a unique position having studied neuroscience, but now working as a research coordinator. So she coordinates all of this research surrounding autism, the causes of autism, and predictors of autism. So we're going to talk all about that today. I think it's very important because I think that once you understand a little bit more about what autism is, this link between vaccines and autism becomes utterly ridiculous. So if you are one who has been curious about this link that we've been discussing, uh, we talked about it from the side of vaccines, and now we're going to learn about autism and uh, learn all about what it is and what we're doing about it in terms of research. So without further delay, let's get into this episode on what is autism? day for some meetings it's just it's so it's such a beautiful campus Mm -hmm. um so uh tell me a little bit about what you do just kind of the brief version uh, yeah so i'm a research coordinator for a study at ucla that's led by um dr shafali jeste and so i kind of think of a research coordinator as like a wedding planner or an event planner for a research study so um participants need to be invited to come in recruited And then they need to be explained what's going to happen in the study. And then once they come in for their study visits, they, um, you know, I need to have everything set up and ready to go so that their visit is as smooth as possible. And that um, whatever is going to happen during the visit, like EEG recording or behavioral testing, that the people that are going to be doing that are all in place and are all scheduled. And um, yeah, that everything just runs pretty smoothly. So you're organizing all the research. This Mm -hmm. is neuroscience research. Mm -hmm. So there's an element of SCICOM essentially to what you do because Mm -hmm. you're explaining to lay people what's going to happen to them. Yeah. And it's really important to these lay people because they're the research participants or their children are. So when their infants come in, they need to know exactly what's going to be happening and especially why and why it's important and why do we use this tool and... Um, right. You know, what does this tool do? Because like I said, it's their kids. So they really need to know. Yes. Um, what is be, the point? <laughs> that would be weird if they didn't. They're like, yeah, yeah. hook some machines up to my baby. Totally. I yeah. What it does. yeah. And they're especially invested because they do want to help autism research. So right. um, I don't really ever feel like I'm getting their buy in. I think they just want to know, you know, they really like research, too. Sure, so they really yeah. want to know. What are these tools yeah. that are at the forefront of science? These probably aren't hardcore science deniers that are coming no. in. They're probably mm-hmm. relatively, or at least yeah. average people towards leaning mm-hmm. maybe slightly scientifically educated yeah. people. Yeah, probably. I mean, there's parents that come in that ask me, have you heard of this? Have you heard of this um, doctor or this method? Right. And I learn a lot from them because they actually oh, okay. bring up studies that I'm not aware right. of. They're, and- not just, they're not <laughs> just telling you about ridiculous stuff they heard on the internet. They're Mm-mm. like actually knowledgeable about Yeah. It. And so okay. I, I have to do my research kind of for them or mm-hmm. else I'd feel mm-hmm. like a dummy in front of them. And we want to be the scientists that kind of, um, kind of direct them towards more evidence-based, I think, um, 
tools and you know interventions and things like that but yeah so yeah i feel like we all just all parts of the research team have to be up on the latest trends and research because these parents know mm-hmm. their stuff. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully they leave with an even much clearer mm-hmm. understanding of it. Definitely. So, so this is all, I mean, this is all uh, autism-based research, right? So you're, yes. You're, you're, you're learning about autism, and mm-hmm. so why don't we just get to the heart of the discussion here? Let's mm-hmm. just start right off the top. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's give a rundown. What is autism? Mm-hmm. How to, what, Just in the most basic terms, mm-hmm. what is it? Sure. Yeah. So for one thing, it's a a neurodevelopmental disorder that consists of three domains that is um, kind of described by the um, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And so those three domains are kind of a difficulty with communication and interacting with others. And um, the second one is restricted interests and repetitive behaviors or RRBs. And then the third kind of domain is just these symptoms interfere with school or life or work or just, um, you know, aspects of, of these people's lives. And so, um, you know, it occurs in about one in 45 people. But I think there is that discussion going on right now of why does it occur? Why does it seem like we're seeing more autism cases and why is it um, kind of more prevalent right now? Right. That's a very interesting question. It's something that people talk about a lot. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about behavioral symptoms. We're mm-hmm. talking about ways that people behave. Mm-hmm. But is it that it is more frequent or is it simply that it is better understood and more frequently mm-hmm. diagnosed? Right. You know, yeah. hundreds of years ago, someone is just a weirdo. Don't worry about yeah. don't worry about Fred. He's mm-hmm. just a strange guy, you know, mm-hmm. steer clear of him. Yeah. Whereas now it's, you know, we because we understand neuroscience, mm-hmm. right, we're getting a better understanding. What, what how has our understanding of autism been enhanced by the by the advancement of neuroscience? Yeah, I think it's it's not only neuroscience, but just the way that we define all all neurodevelopmental and all mental disorders, they kind of change their definition just based on like I said, that DSM Diagnostic Statistical Manual for psychologists. Um, And so, for example, you know, like Asperger's was something that somebody could be diagnosed with earlier. Um, But now in this previous, in this current version, it's Mm -hmm. actually um, lumped into autism. So you would not get that, that, that diagnosis of Asperger's now. Five that they removed Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So I think just the way that um, psychologists and doctors think about autism is different now. I think the the way that they define the symptoms is different. And so somebody that could have, you're right, you know, just been a little bit different um, would not be diagnosed, whereas now they would be. And then I think also there's just so much knowledge in our, um, you know, right now about autism and there's the internet as well. And there's more parents communicating with each other and learning about these things that Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. a lot of that is in the hands of the parents now is kind of thinking about, should I seek a diagnosis or at least assessments or just kind of look into this? Um, so I think that both our definition of autism and just public knowledge about autism and what it is, and I think that's kind of really increased the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the amount of diagnoses. What are the What are the steps that people take if they they're concerned? Okay, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if my child has autism. What What mm-hmm. do they do, and are they often surprised by the results one way or another? What How does that work for a parent that's investigating this? Yeah. So. You really can't see clear signs of autism until 18 months. I'd say that's kind of when the concern really emerges. And you can't, you get a diagnosis, I think, around two years old. So this is thinking about children. 
So at two years old, you can receive a definitive diagnosis. I think the average diagnosis is typically given around three years old, and that's actually older for um, people who are a part of minority groups. But on average, it's about three years old is when the diagnosis is given. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of participants that come in and they um, they want to know if, if like their infant will, will be showing signs a year under a year, that kind of thing. So below 18 months. And I'd say behavior is pretty variable under a year old. So mm-hmm. um, there's just so much variability in what infants do and what they can do and what they right. don't do. That um, It's too hard to see. Yeah. So you really can't see anything, I'd say, under a year. But around that 18 months is, is when you can kind of see signs. But what's interesting is that we've had a lot of participants who come in and they um, their pediatricians kind of wrote off their concerns you know the parents were concerned about my child can't sit up or my child can't um you know isn't really playing with other children or they play in a way that i've never seen a child play before right and or they're not talking and and pediatricians some of them if they're not too knowledgeable about autism will say oh well that's because they're a boy or because they um are just a little (laughs) bit different so let's just wait but if the pediatricians had been more aware of the signs of autism or even just suggested, you know, just go get some di- some assessments, something diagnostic, mm-hmm. then maybe, um, you know, they'd receive a diagnosis earlier. Yeah, I could see it going both ways. I could see parents behaving in a very hypochondriacal manner and mm-hmm. say, oh, everything's wrong with my child, he's got autism, you know, yeah. where, whereas maybe they're just, you know, a bit different or a bit creative mm-hmm. or or delayed speech, like an, like a, a, an apraxia or something like mm-hmm. that, right? some uh, like associated thing. So I could see that. And I could also see maybe some doctor being like, no, there's nothing wrong. It's like, no, the kid's got autism. Mm-hmm. You know, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what what are the what are the kind of tests specifically that are done mm-hmm. that are capable of the, uh, attaining this diagnosis? Yeah. So let's say that a family did have these concerns and a pediatrician did recommend them to go to, um, you know, a psychologist's office to get assessed. So that assessment would consist of typically two things that we should see. One is a interview with the parents or the caregivers just to kind of see what behaviors they the parents see at home and what the child is capable of doing by themselves or that they need, you know, the parents help with. And then the other is a play-based interaction. And the play-based interaction is an assessment where the examiner really wants to see how the child is communicating with them, how they're playing and how, um, you know, if they can really see any of those core symptoms of autism, especially with the the engagement and the communication aspect, if they Mm -hmm. can really get at those signs. And so it's supposed to be very, naturalistic um kind of setting Mm -hmm. and then sometimes if if families want to they'll get a genetic um test and that's kind of like a hot topic i think in a lot of disorders um and or a neurological exam but yeah yeah. that's what i wanted to ask about Mm -hmm. because uh yeah i I don't know where we are with autism research and clearly any condition or disease or anything of this nature must have some uh, some molecular basis. So how much do we know about the causes of autism on the cellular and the molecular level? Is this about neurotransmitters? Is this about the way the neurons are arranged? Do Whatever that may be, does that have a genetic basis? Where mm-hmm. we, This is probably a lot to talk about here, but I definitely yeah. think it's worth talking about in as much detail as we can. Yeah, so there's a lot of risks that are associated, I think. Um, which kind of hint at the biology. So for one thing, um, if you have family history of autism, especially if you have an older sibling that's diagnosed with autism, 
your chances of of getting a diagnosis as well is about 20 to 30 percent so there's definitely something genetic going on mm-hmm. um just yeah, because like of the the family history yeah, yeah definitely um and if you have if there are any kind of complications during the pregnancy or the birth so preterm babies um have a higher risk of developing autism as well and um there are some known genetic mutations that are can be clinically diagnosed they're they're known um and so those genetic mutations can also lead to a higher chance of autism Mm -hmm. but just thinking about you know when we study autism the brains of children who have autism um there are some biological things that we can see so um the cortical surface area in six to twelve month olds who later go on to develop autism is increased um the cerebral spinal fluid in six to twenty four month olds who later go on to develop autism is also increased and then there's just also um, total brain volume is also increased. Um, but it's kind of hard to tell, you know, what that even means and right. what that kind of okay, gives that, us. That's what I was mm-hmm. getting at, because I, if we're if we're identifying a gene, a gene or genes that are responsible, mm-hmm. then I would want to know what the phenotypic result is. Like what, what are the mm-hmm. products of gene expression that are mm-hmm. that are making the autistic person mm-hmm. different on the on the, yeah. you know, on the on the cellular level? So you're saying that there's a correlation between like just brain size mm-hmm. that and specifically a certain area of the mm-hmm. cortex or that's yeah. fascinating yeah definitely there it's definitely just from cell to circuit to to brain i think it's all playing a part in autism just like you know plenty of other disorders what if autism is just like it's just the next step in biological evolution. Like mm-hmm. they started, yeah. they're here, and now like we'll just in a hundred thousand yeah. years we'll all be autistic, and that's just how humans yeah. are. Yeah. Well, we'll autism be. is just such a spectrum. Um, I think right. everybody is just so different that it's really hard to to get at the biology of it and mm-hmm. then say yes, this is how every person who's autistic, how their brain looks, because it is. Yeah, it's not like having mm-hmm. schizophrenia or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, so do do you really believe? Because I I have toyed with this, and you know, I I'm a, a bit of a strange person, and I've you know thought about it from time to time. Mm-hmm. What if I you know register as a blip on the on mm-hmm. the scale? You know, I have difficulty with mm-hmm. social interactions and mm-hmm. things like that. But obviously, I'm mm-hmm. not. And my wife is a psychologist, and she assured me, no, absolutely, you're not autistic. <laughs> but is there such a fluid spectrum that we would all maybe find ourselves on some? on mm-hmm. some place on that spectrum or how, what is our view yeah. on that? Yeah. So I think that, um, I mean, I've, I've heard psychologists say that if you did some sort of autism assessment, probably everybody could, could show up at some point, um, just depending on how many times you do it and who administers it. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can really <laughs> comment mm-hmm. too much on that question though. How do, yeah. are there types of autism? Like, or, mm-hmm. or it, like we know that there's a spectrum, but is there any kind of hierarchy within that spectrum? Do we mm-hmm. can we identify different types? Like, I've heard terms mm-hmm. yeah. like high functioning autism. Mm-hmm. Is that a type mm-hmm. of autism? Or yeah, I think that's just probably people talking about the spectrum. So the spectrum can just really mean that somebody with autism can have really high language abilities, while some people, you know, are are completely nonverbal and don't speak. Some people who are diagnosed with autism have co-occurring anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Others don't. 
some people with autism are advocates for themselves and other people who are diagnosed and others will never be able to live independently without the care of another person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's just such a, such a range and there's this common saying and in both the research world and the clinical world that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Right. Yeah. It's just, the, the human brain is so unimaginably complex that you, you know, you can never reduce it down to a single variable. Someone with autism may have, mm-hmm. you know, depression or they may have, you know, this type of personality or that type of personality. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, how can we ever, mm-hmm. it's astonishing that we even attempt to treat, you know, psychology or neuroscience as yeah. a physical science because there's just <laughs> not qu- enough learned quadrillion variables. Yeah. That have to be dealt yeah. With. And I think that's really where current research is trying to go is really instead instead of saying depression or anxiety or autism really trying to split those up into their own little things led by Mm -hmm. biology and led by what we know about the brain um because it is just so heterogeneous right i think rooting them in physical mechanisms as much as possible Mm -hmm. is definitely one way Mm -hmm. to go about it yeah because a diagnosis is not like cancer or diabetes or heart disease and I think that that's where most scientists and doctors would like it to go is if we right. could diagnose mental disorders, anything that really shows up in the DSM. Right. As, On the basis of, of, of mm-hmm. behavior that we can just observe. Yeah. yeah. And, and quantify through the person's biology. Yeah. That's just so hard. It is really <laughs> it's hard. Like you yeah. You can't like get a blood test and like, yeah, you got mm-hmm. that thing. That yeah. thing is in your blood. So you have that thing, you know. I know. But that's where they want to go. And that's where the, the research that I coordinate for right. is trying to look at. Okay, great. So speaking of current research, mm-hmm. now that we have a little bit of context, we have a little bit better uh, understanding of what autism is, maybe what this, what the causes might be, and, mm-hmm. and you know those aspects. Let's talk about exactly what kind of research goes on in, in your lab. Yeah, so the research in the lab is, is all focused on autism or developmental disorders, but in particular autism. And so the, the study that I coordinate for is a longitudinal study where we examine the development of infants who are at risk for autism because they either have an older sibling with autism, so that's where the, you know, kind of the genetic risk comes in, um, or they have a diagnosis of either 22Q11.2 deletion or duplication, so that's a known genetic mutation that is um, puts you at higher risk for all kinds of things, but um, so autism dele- as well. Deletion or duplication. So that's mm-hmm. one base pair is yeah. either gone mm-hmm. or Duplicated. there's two of them in a row. Mm-hmm. So that's like a frame shift mutation. That just like totally screws up an entire gene, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And Interesting. It, I mean, it, it affects all kinds of things, especially there's heart problems and digestive problems. But um, okay. we focus on the, the autism risk. And then there's another that is called tuberous sclerosis or TSC, and that's another um, genetic mutation that actually forms really small kind of tumorous um, growths. They're called tubers, and they're in the brain and can be all over the body as well. But um, again, known to have a higher chance of developing autism. So Mm -hmm. those are the three groups that are at risk for autism, and we're tracking these infants from birth, so they come in at six weeks, and then we last see them at three years just to see what their outcomes are. And so we use a whole variety of brain imaging techniques mm-hmm. to um, really get at the the biology, and we're looking for biomarkers or early predictors of autism so that we can really see it earlier in life rather than seeing the signs at 18 months and being, oh, okay, you know, let's mm-hmm. let's keep an eye on it and then receive a diagnosis at two years old. So we use um, MRI, EEG, and behavioral testing, and then we also co- uh, collect genetic 
sample from them so we can also just learn more about the genes that mm-hmm. are um, a part of autism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so yeah so the, you're screening the genes to identify who's who's at risk and, and then while yeah. they're there just seeing what else is going on mm-hmm. uh, in the genome yeah let's let's talk about the the mris and the eegs yeah what, what uh i mean we we uh i had your colleague uh, joel on here mm-hmm. and so we actually talked a lot about eegs mm-hmm. and mris but yeah. but for the listeners who maybe didn't hear that episode or kind of forgot a little bit what, yeah. what are those doing and, and in this context, what are we yeah. looking for? Yeah, so the MRI is done at six weeks and nine months on these babies. And the MRI is really kind of just looking for, I'd say, the, the etiology, the etiology of, of autism, kind of just how is the brain structured and how are there really any differences in the children who will later go on to develop autism and, mm-hmm. and don't. Um, and then we also do a couple really interesting tasks while they're in the MRI. So they're asleep in the MRI, but they're also, they have headphones and they're listening to, um, they're listening to word segmentation. So we're kind of trying to see how they are basically developing their language and how they're learning about words and word structure. Um, we also play a recording of their mom reading a book. So we kind of want to see how their brain is reacting to their mom. And then we also play the voice of another mom. So they're kind of seeing, mm-hmm. you know, how their brain is reacting mom to... Mom versus stranger. Cause exactly. Because str- mom yeah. has a lot of emotional connotations associated mm-hmm. with it, whereas stranger, you're just looking at the mm-hmm. words, how they're reacting to words. Exactly, okay. yeah. And so you're looking at, at, at regions of the brain mm-hmm. that are active? Yeah, yeah. So we're recording how their brain um, is really... We're not So during these recordings, we don't look at the structure too much. We're actually recording how the blood is flowing through their brain. So are there different parts of the brain that see more blood flow? And so this would kind of indicate that that region is more active. Higher neuronal activity. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's more active towards um, whatever we're playing. So mm-hmm. um, those are kind of the recordings that we do during the MRI. And so that's really not looking for these biomarkers. I mean, possibly, but MRI is pretty expensive. Every time we scan, (laughs) it's $600. So, um, you know, I I can't really see in the future unless something changes with MRI or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, or a cheaper tech or healthcare or anything. (laughs) Um, but that's kind of just really looking at the biology, I'd say of of autism. So do you, do you find that it, it, that it looks dramatically different, that there are different Mm -hmm. regions that fire Mm -hmm. as, as opposed to someone without autism? Yeah. Do we know which regions they are and what mm-hmm. that might signify? Yeah, th- there's all kinds of regions um, that we've seen mm-hmm. that, you know, the grad students published. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I I don't really see how that super helps us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more interested in the, the EEG part. So the MRI part, you know, I've done MRI research. I've done fMRI research where you see what brain areas are implicated while there's different tasks or just in depressed or not, or people who respond to treatment or not. And, um, I've just kind of become disillusioned, I suppose, of, of this kind of research okay. because I don't know what it, what it's truly helping at. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's some information. It's, it's qualitative it inform- information, yeah. but we're yeah. not, where, where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So this region yeah. of the brain mm-hmm. is more highly active mm-hmm. than this yeah. other person. Well, so yeah. what? Right. What yeah. is, okay. Well, I, well, yeah. I certainly can't answer that so, question. So. Yeah. So this region of the brain is implicated in this kind of function. Um, so, you know, therefore, oh, it's not working so well during this task. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it certainly supports the theory and the idea that these, these disorders are brain-based and that there's something different going on in the brain. Um, 
but mm-hmm. I think because MRI is such an expensive tool, it's very diff- not everybody wants to do it. It's very difficult to um, get our babies to sleep, to go into the machine, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and it's expensive. I think it's a little bit. I'm I'm kind of like a big picture kind of person, so when okay. I think about MRI research and the results, um, it's hard for me to to really like understand how that's going to help us in in the future, mm-hmm. perhaps. So then let's talk about EEG. So yeah. there, there we're looking at at brain waves, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously much cheaper because we're just putting yeah. popping some some it's some cheaper. electrodes on the scalp, mm-hmm. right? It's and, scalable. Yeah. It's very easy to put it in anybody's clinic. You mm-hmm. know, you just have to kind of have the right environment for it. It's easy to train people in it. It's super safe. Mm-hmm. It's non-invasive. Um, and so that's where the the markers of autism, that's what we use to find these markers of autism to mm-hmm. see if there's any kind of, right, like brain waves or brain signals, ways that the brain is communicating with itself, certain regions are communicating with itself that we can identify in the children who are babies, but who those, some of them will later go on to develop autism and okay. some of them won't. So if we could kind of, you know, look back at the brain um, activity of the babies who later went on to develop autism, were there any differences in the way that their brain is communicating with itself, that their brain is processing Mm -hmm. information. And so with that information, we can kind of find these early predictors that will not say, you know, 100% that this child will develop autism. But if, um, you know, if there's already a risk that um, they will because they have family history or an older sibling, um, just, you know, in the future, if we could use this tool to kind of have a more definitive answer to, are there going to be signs of autism later on? Right. If you're getting the profile of a mm-hmm. baby that will develop autism, so what, what are some of these differences? Is there a difference in the actual frequency of the brainwave or is mm-hmm. it just more of a regional thing or what, what are these differences that we're seeing? Yeah, it's kind of both. So it is definitely, um, different regions are communicating with them with each other differently. And then mm-hmm. it is kind of, you know, there's different brain waves, there's alpha and gamma. So these kinds of brain waves are um, like the power is a little bit different between infants who will later go on to develop autism and those that don't. Um, and it is something, yeah, EG is just such a, a really good tool to be able to, to right. see that. Because it's a bit different, mm-hmm. right? MRI, you're seeing which regions are firing but yeah. with EEG, you're seeing how they're firing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So MRI is more um, spatial. So you really get to see right. clear parts of the brains. I yeah. mean, as soon as we put the baby in and run the machine, we can actually see the brain on our side. That's and neat. Yeah. it's amazing because, yeah, you can definitely see all the structures, everything that you learn in Neuro 101. You can mm-hmm. identify a lot. But in um, EEG, you don't, you're kind of listening more to a symphony rather than um, watching it happen. And so the idea is to really just get out what, um, how is the brain communicating with e- with itself and how is it really um, mm-hmm. processing information? And so EEG is more temporal. So it's more about the timing. So as soon as the brain is having this activity, um, we're going to be able to, to record that and see it on the monitor. Okay. So my understanding of neural activity is is just so so, but mm-hmm. if, if we're if we're seeing that there's a discrepancy in in like the timing of the firing, mm-hmm. what does that suggest on the level of the individual neuron and 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 the neurotransmitters? Mm-hmm. Is there something that we can discern about the the diff- the discrepancy in the structure of the neurons themselves between someone with autism and someone mm-hmm. who does not have autism? I would say. 
probably not and I'm not really like a total expert on mm-hmm. EEG and um and all that but I think it can definitely um pick up on kind of just the overall trend and how the neurons are firing because um there is a lot of space and I mean EEG is really a just a composite of all the neurons firing and and we're hearing all these neurons firing um it's not you know like I said it's not so spatial mm-hmm. so um when we hear, you know, when we're listening to the brain, it's kind of all the neurons that are really in that region. So um, I think you could definitely kind of get the trend and how the neurons are firing and then perhaps confirm that in MRI. That'd mm-hmm. probably be pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. You want to <laughs> synthesize the information. Yeah. Yeah. Are, and that's are, why we use both mes- methods is right. to kind of, you know, see if there's anything that's similar. Okay. Are there any other techniques? Or these are the two main ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the two brain-based ones. Um, the biological one is the we get a saliva sample and to just kind of look at the genetics, and then we do behavioral testing, which is kind of more to see if um, you know, first of all, to classify the infants when they grow up to see if they will have autism mm-hmm. at three years old, but then also just to kind of see are there any really early signs that we can see in their behavior, um, maybe at nine months or six months. Is it, is it ever the case where you're like, look, uh, they've got this genetic thing. (laughs) The EEG looks like that. The MRI looks like Mm -hmm. that. They're behaving this way. Mm -hmm. Your kid is, they've got autism. That's what we hope to do. But, um, and this is just such like a logistical science thing, but just at the rate of analyses and the rate that we can get at all the, the analyses is, we can't do it like so quickly. Right. Um, the so, science as a yeah. whole is not quite there yet, but that's sort of what your and research our is doing. Well. Yeah. You're getting the science to that point, mm-hmm. getting as much yeah. data as possible. These yeah. babies that got that, that developed autism, mm-hmm. this is what their EEG looked like. This is what their MRI, mm-hmm. MRI looked like. Almost yeah. like a database that you can then refer yeah. to. Yeah. The more information, the better. And um, we do have a lot of families that come in and they want to, um, you know, they are very nervous about their infant because they already have a child that's diagnosed. And so they really want to track this infant's development as early as possible. Um, And they do, you know, kind of ask, is there anything that you guys can see on the EEG? And unfortunately we can't just because, you know, the research isn't there yet, but that's what, that's what we're trying to answer. And that's Mm -hmm. why we're so appreciative of, of their time. They're like, and, lay it to me straight, Doc. What yeah. is it? You know, does it look weird? And <laughs> I know. I really wish you could tell them. But no, that's truly what we're trying to get right, at is yeah. to be able to answer that question. Yeah, because yeah. the earlier that you can answer that question, the better the outcome will be. Because if you know the answer, then you can um, get intervention earlier. What does that look like? The intervention? Yeah. yeah, it can be all kinds of different things that is really addressing the specific need, I think, of the child. Because Like I said, autism is a spectrum. So, you know, if their language is delayed, they can receive speech therapy. Um, If their motor is delayed, they can receive physical therapy. There are, um, you know, different kinds of interventions that are more play-based, that are more for social interaction, um, you know, playing with other children that are their age, um, communicating better. Um, Yeah, just all kinds of Mm -hmm. different targets for their social communication skills it kind of seems like all of that stuff is just like good stuff for kids though right Mm -hmm. like helping people like I had a hell of a time socializing as a kid like I just yeah it it didn't work for me Mm -hmm. and like I don't I don't think I'm autistic Mm -hmm. but if I had been treated as such and like went through all of that uh, to like help me socialize more properly Mm -hmm. I would have been really beneficial for me yeah yeah there are programs I think that are um 
should really be expanded to yeah. all kids. You to, know? to all kids. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to have any kind of diagnosis. Absolutely. But. Because you don't, you know, not everyone has parents that are, you know, educated in behavioral mm-hmm. uh, psychology yeah, and, yeah. And, and cognitive mm-hmm. neuroscience. So like, yeah. not, not all yeah. parents are like, okay, you gotta, I mean, a lot of parents, I mean, especially in Los Angeles mm-hmm. are like, oh, yeah. I read this book and I saw this thing and I got to totally. do this and my yeah. kids got to do that. But yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's very, these are critical mm-hmm. yeah. years. And if there's no concrete way to really do that, um, you know, specific things to do or specific programs to go to, I think it can be really hard. Because mm-hmm. we all know what the problems are, um, mm-hmm. but it's kind of hard to find the right treatment or or what to do. Yeah, and then after a certain point, treatment. I mean, it's like we're not. Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, how close is autism to just like? Let's say we're talking about like an extroverted kid or an introverted kid. What's well, like? That's just the personality. Like, you mm-hmm. don't treat that. That's yeah. a, You know, obviously autism. I mean, different personalities also have a genetic basis. So mm-hmm. I don't know where we view autism is it just like a way you can be or is Mm -hmm. it a problem you know oh that's such a a hot topic I think for yeah yeah, and for definitely I mean I kind of mentioned that some people who have autism are self-advocates for themselves but I think there's that neurodiversity movement right um for because a lot of Mm -hmm. autistic people are 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 savant like right sure yeah And, and you can make the argument that savants are like that's a good thing mm-hmm. like you could you know there's these people yeah. that can do these incredible things and yeah. it's like why are you telling them that they have a problem mm-hmm. they can do this amazing yeah. thing that no one else can yeah. do yeah yeah and that's just again like where it's such a spectrum and um yeah I, th- I think it's really great that that they can do that for themselves but mm-hmm. unfortunately there are other people who have that same diagnosis that are just completely severely completely impaired different just a mess yeah mm-hmm. yeah wow well, it's and this is. I mean, how long has this kind of research been going on that we've even begun yeah. to? When when did mm-hmm. we first use the word autism? Even wait, that must have been the middle of the twentieth century. At yeah, the, at the earliest. Yeah, I believe right? it was maybe the seventies I mean, or something. I, I have no idea. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, I want to say um, it was. I mean, edit this out if this is incorrect, but I mm-hmm. want to say that it was um, named after the person that discovered you know, and kind of identified and came up with this definition. Um, Frank autism? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Uh Um, Where Uh this idea even came up with, you know, to to diagnose. Yeah, definitely something to Google. It it was just somebody who who Mm -hmm. was possibly a behavioral psychologist that was just noticing a trend in certain types of behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that's just kind of, you know, I mean, it's really like a socially defined kind of thing, and that's just really where we are in our society, mm-hmm. in our culture, in defining these different disorders, you know, yeah. same with anxiety and depression and, and bipolar is that this is, mm-hmm. I mean, we came up with this, but if we could really yeah. get some backup from, from things like EEG and MRI and right. biology, then Rooted we'd really, in physical mechanisms mm-hmm. and then you're working. Some, yeah. Then we'd really yeah. be able to know what our targets are for intervention. And yeah. I think everybody would really just have a better outcomes. Yeah. Speaking of culture and 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 noticing behavior and stuff like this, mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to talk about because I did an entire uh, yeah. episode on vaccines, mm-hmm. and obviously it's very much in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, mm-hmm. So, I without prefacing it whatsoever, I would yeah. like to hear your take on the on the controversy of whether vaccines cause autism. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess I can just kind of start with the history of it because I think a lot of people know probably where it came from. It came from that article that was in The Lancet and then it was retracted. But, um, you know, it was an article in the late 90s by Andrew Wakefield and he was 
who's not a behavioral expert. He was actually a doctor. He was a gastroenterologist. And so he, um, he had a, an article that was published that really wasn't even um, kind of like a case control kind of scientific design study. It was more of a case study. And he had 12 children who um, had a diagnosis of autism or autism signs. And they received two vaccines, you know, the two dose of MMR vaccine. And they showed um, the ones who had the autism symptoms, they had the, the virus in their stomach. And so he was kind of thinking that there was this link. And in the study that he published, he didn't really say anything about, you know, there's this link between autism and vaccines. But in a video that kind of coincided with the, the article's release, that's when he said that kind of statement. Is like that, on a TV show or something or where... I'm not really sure where it was. I don't know if it was an interview, um, but it was a just this video that was kind of released to coincide with the paper. And um, so basically, we have a guy yeah. speculating on something that's mm-hmm. not even his field. Pretty much, and yeah. it wasn't really even a scientifically designed study. You know, it's right. a case study, which you know there's some value in those, but it's not like it was followed up with other right. studies. So obviously, the reaction to this was very uh, big, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, unfortunately you know, the reaction was so big that it kind of wasn't, it was not dampered by the other studies that were done, obviously, in reaction to this to kind of say, is there some sort of evidence that we can show after doing, you know, studies um, that kind of show, is there this link? And so they didn't show that, but um, the damage is the done. damage was done, unfortunately. And I think looking back, it was shown that, um, you know, in his article, he said that there should not be these two doses, there should be one, um, interestingly enough, he had filed a patent for a one-dose MMR vaccine, so that was interesting. I think it was also revealed that he, um, you know, was paid by attorneys who were filing lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers. So, you know, there's a lot of special interest, and I think that's important to look at. But the big picture is that there is no evidence that um, vaccines. None whatsoever. Not by any kind of reputable no. scientific study. And in fact, I mean, even knowing just the slightest bit about autism, mm-hmm. uh, given the conversation we've yeah, no, just definitely. been having, what, how, how what could mm-hmm. be the mechanistic link? How yeah. could this possibly be the case? I mean, we've already outlined a very strong case for the genetic basis mm-hmm. for autism. Yeah. How is a vaccine, how is mm-hmm. an attenuated virus mm-hmm. going to alter your mm-hmm. genetic makeup? It just does yeah. not make any sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it really I mean, boggles my mind. This is something, autism is something that's kind of in that's getting going as soon as the sperm meets the egg, right? I mean, it is right. in your genetics, and they've done MR- MRIs in babies. I mean, we do it at six weeks. That's pretty early, but they've been done in babies who aren't even born yet, you know, that are still in the womb, and they find that there's differences in mm-hmm. the brains of babies who later go on to develop autism and those right. that don't. So this is really something that's kind of in motion before you're even born, before you even get a vaccine. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that those two ideas can really exist at the same time. Yeah. Um, I think the the vaccine, you know, scare has kind of moved on to different I- ideas of why it's scary. But Oh, no, trust me. Yeah. I, I still, this is what <laughs> I deal with and uh, yeah, it's still yeah. very prevalent. Yeah, but I will say, and, and I mean, we kind of mentioned this earlier. I have all the families that I've had in the study that I've interacted with, they are at like the forefront of science. But I will say that, um, you know, when we think about all kinds of different pseudoscience ideas, like the flat earth video that you made, I love that video. Um, and you know, anything else that we could think of, um, you know, those are all kind of just things that 
our ideas about the world and how the world exists. It doesn't, you know, like who, even if the earth was flat, like who cares? Um, well, who, I mean, it would <laughs> matter, of yeah. course. I mean, it would matter for our understanding, but that doesn't necessarily impact our lives. But, you know, when I think about the families who come in who have these babies and they're really nervous about their development, right. you know, this is their child. This is something that it, they, it's home. yeah, yeah it, that they love and that they're so invested in that I think that you know, we don't have any clear answers to give families about autism and what is causing it. So when there's that fear and that kind of shame and that just kind of general negative feelings come about, I think the cognitive bias really kicks in. And so when these kinds of ideas about, you know, it was a vaccine, you know, now there's kind of this kind of power over, I had, you know, control in this situation or I, um, this was something that, Mm -hmm. You know, now I have like a clear explanation brain, for this. The brain hates the unknown. Mm-hmm. It wants it really to does. give yeah. a reason to everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, vaccines are administered uh, roughly, uh, yeah. can, you know, at the same time as mm-hmm. uh, as uh, autism. The symptoms, the symptoms kind of appear. Crop up. So yeah. it's just it can't be clearer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on yeah this this kind this uh this yeah. bias that you're that you're citing yeah. here i mean and it's just uh, key uh, more than anything else what i've realized in as, as a science communicator is how thoroughly chemophobia how mm-hmm. widespread chemophobia yeah, is absolutely all you have to do is say something that confirms mm-hmm. to someone their pre-existing bias that mm-hmm. chemicals are bad mm-hmm. and they'll believe whatever you say mm-hmm. they really will yeah i mean or a certain subset mm-hmm. of people anyway and um, that is one of the main things mm-hmm. that I am campaigning against in with mm-hmm. my life. Like, yeah. I just, chemophobia drives yeah. me up the wall. If you can't pronounce <laughs> it, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen exactly. posts or whatever that's like, if you can't pronounce it, it's bad for you, but, you know, Asinine. everything's a, and yeah. it's a chemical. I mean, or natural good synthetic bad, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's something else that I, you know, spend mm-hmm. a lot of time yeah. on. But um, Yeah, but that's why I think that science communication for, that's kind of targeted at certain groups to their level of understanding with their with respect to what they're concerned about is super important because um yeah I mean with parents it is just something that they are they want a clear answer and they'll kind of get that in whatever whether it's true or not way yeah in whatever way I think it makes the most sense they'd rather have something that's conclusive but wrong Mm -hmm. than just simply unknown yeah you know yeah and so Mm -hmm. when it comes to their kids like I really obviously I don't agree with it but I I can understand it and this kind of, you know, judgment like, oh my gosh, they're so stupid is, you know, it kind of, I used, I totally used to be somebody like that, you know, like total judgment and total just like, you know, read a book, like look into the evidence, be logical. But, um, you know, I think communication targeted towards families, towards parents, um, is something that that's really important. Yeah, it, it is hard for all of us to to try to approach it from that empathetic mm-hmm. uh, vantage yeah. point and you know try to understand. Uh, but uh, I mean, I try my best to to do that as well. Mm-hmm. I think just in general popularizing science education, you know, because mm-hmm. if, if people had a basic mm-hmm. understanding of mm-hmm. chemistry and biochemistry and biology, I mean, yeah. we're talking about like could get a B minus on a high school test. Mm-hmm. Not not that much, you know. Mm-hmm. Then I'd think I th- I would think that the proportion of people who would fall for something like that would be yeah. cut just drastically down mm-hmm. to only a small fraction of yeah. what it is now, you know. And just really so. understanding what science is and what goes into coming up with a research question and what mm-hmm. goes into, you know, analyses and good methods versus bad methods. Um, I think that's super important too, and I think a lot of our families really get that kind of exposure to science and. 
and how science works when they come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really great. And that's yeah. a cool way to interface with it. Yeah. To, yeah, to interface yeah. with the public in general. Yeah. So this is pulling you a little bit in, in the direction of SciComm. You're thinking you mm-hmm. might be wanting to get into SciComm as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the first experience that I'm really having is is with these families that come in because they, they do want to know what is MRI and what is EEG and what's mm-hmm. the point in, you know, hooking my baby up to these sensors and what are what are you really yeah. trying to see and how will this help them because you know they they kind of come in and they dedicate their time and energy and their their baby that they just gave birth to um to yeah. be able to find out all of this stuff and so um since i'm kind of their main line of contact i really feel like i'm very responsible for their impression of not just our work but science in general right yeah and explaining um, science yeah. on a video versus mm-hmm. explaining science to someone's face are mm-hmm. very different art forms <laughs> it is especially to someone's face where their baby is um With hooked baby, up to yeah. a sensors on their brain mm-hmm. um, okay, we're gonna yeah. impale your baby on this <laughs> blunt object but don't worry it won't hurt very much just a little bit yeah. right yeah no and i mean that's why you know, I think the relationship between study participant and scientist is so beautiful in a way because these families want to know answers. They're looking for answers that they've never gotten. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we can't give it to them, you know, too immediately, but they are contributing to those answers. So I think that's really fulfilling right. to them. They're part of the process. They of are. Getting, yeah. yeah. I feel like if we could help communicate to the public that the unknown is okay, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that it will Definitely. always be there, right? The frontier yeah. of science is always moving and therefore mm-hmm. what is, you know, what is known is always growing, yeah. in, but that there will always be unknown, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's always unknown fine. and there's always, there's always what we have, in place in our theoretical, you know, what we know about science in the world and the brain, but there's always things that are at at the forefront of research. Um, you know, just like what is implicated in, in autism and what is, you know, what are these things that we're seeing after we do all these experiments? And I think there's a lot of conversation that goes into science and to experiments and, you know, the data that we collect amongst scientists you know there's there's questions and discussion about the methods was that a good method to use did mm-hmm. that really get out what you were the question that you were asking was the analysis done right is that a is that a good way to kind of you know analyze or just kind of talk about what you found and i think that the studies that come out and that are at the forefront of science and that are new i think it's really hard to communicate that to especially people who are impacted by that research, but yeah. also just the general public because they aren't scientists and they're not trained in that they kind of... They don't know of, how research is done. Right? Yeah, they're not trained in that kind of like metho- methodological questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it should just be done very carefully instead of saying scientists found that eating grapes is linked to autism. Right. You better read this article because I see so many articles oh, that are yeah. kind of just shown like that. They say... And it, it's just not true that every article that comes out is going to be, you know, relevant to everybody. Every in in the in the in the era of clickbait, yeah. every study must be mm-hmm. the most incredible study that has ever happened. Or true, and that's just not the way that right. that scientists. I mean, you go to any science conference or lab meeting and the way that scientists talk yeah. about, talk about their, this their is what we results did. this is what we found <laughs> mm-hmm. we think it might be this we're not yeah. sure we got to do this next study next yeah, and we'll figure it out better totally. yeah. there's it's a like, lot of discussion and questioning I and um i think if the public could kind of just see that that's how science is done 
And that's how it's done until, you know, there's kind of this consensus. And the consensus takes a while because the study needs to be replicated. You know, the results mm-hmm. need to be seen by all kinds of people. It's not just one study shows this and then this is the It's so the strange all. because <laughs> the, the, the poor public, they're assaulted from both sides. They're, they're misinformed by the way pro-science media present science. Mm-hmm. And they're misinformed by mm-hmm. all the anti-science propaganda. Mm-hmm. So what hope do they have of understanding mm-hmm. how science works? You've got yeah. a misportrayal mm-hmm. of science and a mischaracterization yeah. of science. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know what to do. What do we do? <laughs> I think know? we just have to show people how how science works and how scientists work and think. And I mean, obviously, I love science communication. I love learning about science. I think everybody should. But learning about science that is going to... A, help what they're interested in, um, you know, help if they have a diagnosis of something or their family member does, and B, science that is kind of just framed on what is really well established and what's not necessarily at the forefront Mm -hmm. of science. So, you know, theories that are really well established, theories that, you know, all the, the research that we do, the current trends are based on theories that have been really well established decades right. ago yeah um, i think i think that's mm-hmm. one problem is that people need to know that once a theory has been corroborated beyond mm-hmm. reasonable doubt yeah it's still called a theory mm-hmm. it's not yeah. called a law oh, now that's true. it's not yeah. it's still mm-hmm. you know like there, it's a it's a theory that mm-hmm. we know is for sure true mm-hmm. it's yeah it's still called a theory yeah as opposed to l- legitimately tenuous theories mm-hmm. that do exist mm-hmm. that are on the forefront we're like this is a theory that yeah. may explain this and we're working you know what i mean mm-hmm. but yeah. it's just it's they're all called theories yeah know? i mean one thing i didn't really understand when i first began doing research is that all research is based on theories but you know the new research that's coming out can disagree with each other and that's okay mm-hmm. the point is to do more research so that you really find what is the what is more accurate of what our world is like um so you know Absolutely. 100 years ago we didn't know if the neuron was chemical or electrical now we know it's actually both, both but those were yeah. two competing theories and they, you know, both sides knew yeah. they were super right, but you yeah. have to do more research until you find what is the true, the true kind of answer. Right. I think of chemical bonding. There's Vesper theory. There's, there's, uh, there's valence bond theory. There's, there's uh, molecular orbital theory. There's crystal field theory. There's mm-hmm. all these theories of bonding mm-hmm. and you use this one here and you use this one over here and they, mm-hmm. they're, they're all true. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they just, they're, they're applicable in different, mm-hmm. different, for yeah. different phenomena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really, just this 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 problem of, of vocabulary, yeah. it should be mm-hmm. the easiest one to solve. I've made mm-hmm. some content attempting to to you know to mm-hmm. attack this. Of course, it's not always that well mm-hmm. viewed, but uh, yeah, I think we just need a, a nice little army mm-hmm. of psychomers yeah. to make the right kind of content mm-hmm. in huge bulk quantities mm-hmm. and figure out how to disseminate it such that people yeah. will actually watch mm-hmm. it to the uh, right audience and that's right. with the right I think goal I think the goal should just I mean we all want people to understand but really like understand and internalize that goal is to not make people feel stupid or um, yeah no that's you know right anything like that yeah it's tough because you usually i'm very good at that but then uh, sometimes i'll descend into like say this flat <laughs> earth this flat earth uh, rabbit well, hole where it's just they like, really you know, gave it to you so yeah you just had to but i get back. you know i get testy and i get i get I a little bit insulting and it's like well you know you just you push too many buttons you know no. <laughs> i would never approach it that way to somebody oh, who no, is no. just ignorant but not 
you know, yeah. caustic about mm-hmm. it, you know, or yeah. not. Well, also then there's all the, you know, it's just trolls and it's a whole thing. So that's with the internet, else, it's hard because who knows who's behind that keyboard. Who knows who's who, yeah. In person, science communication, I think, is probably the most effective. That's true, yeah. <laughs> if we could only get people we we need we need more things like the like the bill nye ken ham debate like those kinds of things mm-hmm. where like people are coming mm-hmm. and they're watching and the, mm-hmm. it's like you can't can't escape right yeah. we're, we're, you're you're in this room you, you gotta uh-huh. listen you, you gotta, gotta listen, listen to both people yeah you know totally i would love to be that person i'd yeah. love to be on one on one side of w- any of these topics i know <laughs> I definitely want yeah to. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, what do you get? What? Uh, how are you? You're, so, you've got your current job. How do you mm-hmm. see yourself uh, staying there for a while, or you, do you plan to transition out of that? And- yeah, I'm definitely going to do it for at least one or two years um, because it is really something. It's a job that I get to see a lot of aspects of science. So, I'm at the 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 in the trenches of research, but I also get to do a little bit of analyses and mm-hmm. and really come up with new questions for the study. Um, but yeah, I'm super interested in research that has to do with people and finding, you know, evidence for treatments or finding markers of, um, of certain disorders so that we can really come up with something that's going to help people. I just, that's always my, my big question. And what I think about when I, when I'm doing the research is I just really want to find something that's going to help people who have the disorder right now and need the treatment right now and need answers right now. Um, that's just kind of my motivating factor. I did mm-hmm. mouse research before that was obviously looking into different brain disorders, but I was just kind of disillusioned with with what we were coming up with and how is that going to help people now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could definitely help our knowledge and understanding and then that will lead to changes in the future. But I'm really somebody that likes to do clinical you know, research that is in humans. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think probably a PhD and something that is neuroscience related for sure. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're going to yeah. keep going. I was almost mm-hmm. going to say that your job is like a perfect, uh, halfway between academia and research mm-hmm. and pure psychom. Cause you're sort mm-hmm. of, you're in that middle role. Yeah. I'm, but- I'm trying to find out what I've it- talked to different people who do psychom and they yeah. say, well, think about what you want to do and then think about do you even need like a certain degree for that? Yeah. Um, and what kind of degree would you, you know, there's a lot of people that are in psychom that have PhDs that kind of right. like landed in psychom, but did they right. really need a PhD for that? No, you definitely no. don't. <laughs> I mean, of course, I don't have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like one, but it would be almost yeah. incidental. It, it yeah. would almost just be like to communicate that content or to communicate what it's like getting a PhD yeah. or something because I definitely don't need one. If you're a generalist, yeah. you certainly don't need one. Yeah. But if you want to communicate that field. Yeah, you have to be an expert obviously, yeah. on it. I would definitely trust somebody that has a PhD, yeah. but... Um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure that out. There's there's PhDs that are clinical and translational science that are more for translating science into um, you know evidence based interventions and treatments. There are master's degrees that are in psychom so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah just figuring out what fits the best right yeah there are degrees cropping up now yeah, yeah mm-hmm. as of the middle of this decade where people are like whoa we need science communicators let's mm-hmm. make it a thing in school yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah it's very cool. Totally. There's a lot of options. I know. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is also reassuring because I think that our culture is sort of recognizing how critical this is, that we mm-hmm. need a, we need 
a, a cultural mm-hmm. change here. Yeah. And the way you're going to do it is by throwing a lot of people at the problem mm-hmm. and training them and yeah. educating them and making content and uh, interfacing mm-hmm. with the problem because otherwise mm-hmm. it's the challenge of the 21st century here. Yeah. We've got, uh, we, we've got the volume of misinformation outweighs pu- pure information mm-hmm. a million to one. Mm-hmm. We've got people that are confused and have no way to figure out what's what. And that's mm-hmm. not just scientifically, that's politically, that's everything. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out a way to get a more educated and, infor- and informed public. Yeah. That's the challenge of this century. Yeah. Who know like. what to do with that information, that's right. I think, as yeah. well. And how to really understand the information that they're given yeah. and why it's important and why... Mm-hmm. How is it done? How did that information come about? Yeah. Because there's lots of information about there. But if you if you don't understand and, you know, really appreciate how that knowledge was created, then I, I think it's really easy to just believe anything and right. do anything with any information. Or, or just believe that that it's dogmatic one mm-hmm. way or another, mm-hmm. the, that, that people yeah. think science is just dogma or doctrine, mm-hmm. just the way religion is. It's just, well, mm-hmm. there's a fundamental gap in your understanding mm-hmm. of how, how science works and how yeah. the scientific community operates. Yeah. And be okay but, uh, with the unknown be okay and with no unknown. answers and being patient for answers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, now, now I'm all revved up. I got to go, go get back to work here. <laughs> cool. I got to get back to making Sounds stuff. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is great. Thanks for coming by. I you know, I, I, I enjoyed learning about I didn't know too much about autism, so it's cool mm-hmm. to learn about that. Um yeah. and cool to hear about what kind of research is going on. Yeah, research is awesome. Yeah. Participate in research if you can. For sure. As a control, perhaps. As a control. <laughs> There's yeah. always control groups. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, no problem. Bye.